Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. We are proud partners with Politicon. Follow with Politicon on all social media, and go to politicon.com for show notes on this episode and more great political content. We also are proud to have a new sponsor, Magic Spoon. It is magical cereal. We'll tell you more about it later. Thanks to all of you for listening today. Tell your friends. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, I must tell you that I went last night and I was writing about this presidential debate for The Hill. And uh, as I began, I got bash envy. That's as in CNN's Dana Bash, who called that debate last night a shit show. And I just wish I could have said that. I mean, Trump, who has nothing to say substantially, wanted to disrupt and rattle Biden. He succeeded in disrupting, but with with, with one or two exceptions, he didn't rattle Joe Biden. Uh, the vice president got a couple things wrong, like the trade deficit, but on most stuff, especially COVID-19, number of Americans with pre-existing conditions, Trump was on his heels. Uh, and he got off the hook on his personal tax scandals revealed by the New York Times. He just stonewalled it. That will not go away. And just finally, nobody wins a debate like this. It was a god-awful night, but Trump lost. He is clearly behind, and he needed something approaching a game-changer. He didn't come close to getting it. The vice president has reason to be pleased. Uh, He went in ahead, did nothing to hurt himself, and is ahead today, perhaps even by a little more. Yeah, I have a a, a little more optimistic. I actually think Biden helped himself. I mean, people had doubts about Biden. This was not just one focus group, but overwhelmingly people were, you know, were concerned about his age. Were concerned about, you know, having the left having too much influence, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I thought he he went in and had some work to do. And actually, it, the, what I'm scared of is that Trump chased all the audience away. But I wish I, I, the more people I stayed and watched that debate, I, actually, the better I would feel. I, I, I don't. I think Biden was was significantly better than adequate, and people do have doubts about his age. And and he was he was as sharp as he was when he was in his fifties. I mean, he, he had pretty good command of the facts. He's not the greatest debate in the world. No one expected that. But I, I actually, my take is. He he did better than people were giving him credit for. I mean, Trump is just overwhelmed, as you can imagine, the entire coverage. And it, there's only the Trump part of the debate was a shit show. Biden, you know, actually conducted himself with with, with admirable deportment. I thought. I you know I actually agree. Uh, I I just think the only reason he might not get all the credit this is a he's happy today, but 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 it was so debased by Trump. It was so demeaned that it's kind of hard for anyone to be, but you know, repulsed by the whole thing. The moderator lost control. It was chaotic. It went beyond. It was just the worst debate that's ever been held. And, you know, just say one more thing. There've been suggestions by so-called pundits like Joe Scarborough that Biden ought to refuse uh, subsequent debates. That's insane. That's what Trump wants him to do. I'm sorry. He did fine last night and Trump is never going to do any better. But, but I, again, I get to actually think, you know, now John Harris and I, you know, I like John, and but it, it, just the whole thing was just a mess. People are just, just no, it was not. It was only his portion, and I, I look at the headlines, and the, the sort of clever thing to say is, oh, the whole thing was a damn mess, and you know, it's just the American politics. It, his part was, and I look, I, I, Chris Wallace lost control of it. He, I don't know what the guy could have done. I know what Tim Russer would have done. Tim, Tim, Tim Russer would have said after 10 or 15 minutes, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have rules. And if you're not going to abide by the rules, what I'm going to do is we're going to change the rules. and I'll cut off your mic while the other person's talking. Look, I think Joe Biden did just fine. It's something called Gresham's Law. And that is that it just brings down everything. It didn't hurt Joe Biden, but it was hard to say, God, I love watching Joe Biden last night because the whole thing was, as Dana said, a shit show because of Trump. I, I know, I understand that. I, I actually, you know, maybe you look at the contrast, or, you know, of course, I'm, I look at some people emailing me and texting me like focus group with people use the terms. And I actually, I, 
you know, I don't think Trump did terribly and brought Biden down to a level. I, I, I no, no, I'm not saying that. Yeah. I wish they'd debate five more times. Yeah, I agree. I, it was like I had to watch it because I had to do television after. There's no way I would have stayed and watched that debate after the first half hour. Well, that's what I mean. You're exactly right. And that had nothing to do with Joe Biden. No. Uh, he, he was doing fine. No, no, no. I, I That's absolutely right. You know, there are a couple of things that we can't let pass, too. Uh, and that is that that when he he his message to that right wing militia group, the Proud Boys, Trump's message was load and lock for November four. I, I mean, that just chills went down my back. Uh, he is he is encouraging people to be violent. Uh, it was it was it was appalling that a president of the United States would say something like that. So that is OK. That is coded language. He is for the next week's show. And I think the Southern Poverty Law Center is good on this. We need to get someone that studies these extremist groups. Right. All right. Because Trump was sending them language. Now, I'm just going to give you my theory. It, it, it's out there. But I, I think last night this gave me more confidence. I'm right. He knows that he is not going to win the election on any kind of legitimate basis. And he also knows that he is in massive legal jeopardy, massive legal jeopardy. Uh, even if the new attorney general just took the, the, the Mueller report, the obstruction charges would be a, a very, very difficult case for Trump to defend that. Don't even mention the New York DA, the Manhattan, the New York AG, the Manhattan DA. And I think he wants to keep these people close to him. And you notice he also singled out Philadelphia and they're going to try to deal with it, you know, and of course, Philadelphia, you grew up in the Philadelphia area, Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia is kind of code for African-Americans. And they are going to try to say that the whole thing was illegitimate. It was crooked. And we're not going anywhere. We're not going to accept this. And these people will be out in the streets and, you know, defending him. And he'll say, it'll all go away if I get a pardon. I think he is, I actually believe this is part of the survival strategy on his part, because there's nothing that anyone saw last night where you said to yourself, this guy is trying to win this election. No. And like Tim Scott said, well, it would be terrible if he doesn't clarify this. He's not going to clarify. He's not going to clarify the QAnon stuff. In his back of his mind, he thinks that he can form some kind of personal militia to save his legal skin and his family skin. That I, that, I think, is behind all of this. And it's the only explanation that I can come up with to explain what happened last night. I would have dismissed that a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's very hard to dismiss now. And, you know, Senator Scott said the same thing after Charlottesville. I mean, at some point, Senator Scott, you can realize that he's not going to clarify it because he has clarified it. It's what he believes. He's a racist. He wants to play the race card. He wants to turn Americans against one another. Uh, he wants to incite violence if he needs to save his own ass. Uh, and that's just a fact of life. Well, I, I, look, I, I would say he does right. He says racist things. He compliments racist groups. All right. I, I, I'm, his history is, is certainly one with more than just flirtation with racism. But right. I, I don't know if he, if he uses it to exploit things for his own personal good or that he genuinely believes that, I would suspect it's both. But uh, but right now, he's using that because he feels like he has to have a real core of support that will protect him from going to the penitentiary. It's where he's going. Uh, we could get any tax lawyer to tell you what all of the potential criminal violations that they have in these tax returns. They're not just like, fine, well, you, you, you deducted some meal here. You should, you know, you went to Judy on a trip and you took that off. You, that's not what we're dealing with here. I mean, we're dealing with massive, massive. In, you know, and, and we know uh, for a fact that the Manhattan DA is highly competent and has a very, very deep investigation. And Trump knows that. Right. And Trump knows the New York State authorities and knows he, the, the new attorney general will not be named Bill Barr. I promise you that. And this guy is trying to stay out of jail because that's where he's going. 
And you look at the Brad Parcell thing, they have rifled through and stolen God knows how many tens of hundreds of millions of dollars in that campaign. And it's all going to come out. It just is. There's no stopping it. Well, on that on that note, I agree. It would be really good to get one of those experts on those hate groups on right. in the next week or two. But also, let's go get Andrew Weissman on. Uh, he His book is out, and we can talk about the book, but he also can talk about, uh, you know, how prosecutable Trump and his family uh, might be next January. And I think uh, he's he knows that pretty well. We've got to get Andrew Weissman, and we got to get an expert on these kind of fringe hate groups. Right. Because there is something that that language about block and stand by, that is language that they use. That's just he didn't just happen to come up with that. And you, you know, he's always talked about my people can get, you know, they play nice, but they're not playing nice anymore. He is going to try to disrupt this thing and where and you know, I I've run this theory by several people. And, you know, half of them say, if it's that's what it takes to get him out of there, James, shit, just let him go. All right? Just let him go to Mar-a-Lago and do his show. I just can't take this anymore. And to, he's counting on that. He's counting on that. And, you know, and he's saying, well, you know, if you, you prosecute him, you're just going to keep the country divided. It's going to be a big mess. You know, sometimes, you know, discretion is the better part of, of, of prosecution. And it's just better to let it go. It, and I, you're going to hear that argument a lot. And you've got to admit that it, it is somewhat attractive. Well, I would I would say it's somewhat attractive with a caveat. Going back to the time when Ford and pardoned Nixon, which was absolutely the right thing to do. The one mistake Ford made was he did not get an admission of guilt. And I think if this guy needs a pardon uh, of any sort, the, the, the prerequisite ought to be an admission of guilt. And uh, if he's not willing to do that, no pardon. I could, I could change, but I'm a little bit harder ass. I think that in the words of Senator Gary, him and his whole fucking family need to go to jail. Well, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. I'm saying if you give him a pardon, there's only way you do it is if you get an admission of guilt. That's all I'm saying. I think I'm closer to your view. I want to see him in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah, I, we're not that far apart, but 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 the point is, we can both see. My, my point: we kind of agree. We can both see it coming to where you're going to have to make a judgment. If he says, "I I I, I, I want to go to Mar-a-Lago. I want to do Trump TV. I'll sign anything. I'll do anything." Right. I mean, let me just say a final point, which I was disappointed it, it was not asked last night. I mean, one of the, I think the biggest bombshell in that New York Times tax story wasn't that he didn't pay, but, you know, taxes for 10 years and 750 bucks for a couple of years. I mean, we sort of guessed that. But the biggest thing is he is so in debt. This is a man who is who is on the on the, on the brink of potential financial ruin. He really needs uh, uh, that. And uh, that is a huge issue for him going ahead. Is it? I mean. And, and, you know, in his whole, it, it, the big trouble he's got, too, is his whole idiot family. Remember, Eric has to testify on October 7th. I cannot begin to tell you how prepared those prosecutors are going to be. And, and they will they will throw, and, you know, he's still sitting out there with Bannon. You, you forget Bannon's got, a, you know, he's got, he's in serious and profound legal jeopardy. Obviously, bad Brad Parcell is in serious and profound legal jeopardy, and neither one of those going to stand up and not try to get out of going to the penitentiary. He, Trump, is in deep, deep legal jeopardy on every front, and he knows it. He knows it. And Bob Woodward made the very good point that the only thing that saves him is there's no John Dean, but there are there are John Dean, Dean wannabes out there. You just named two of them. These people in New York, these are not Robert Mueller. They're not gonna they're not gonna give him written interrogatory. Right. 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 It's just not gonna happen. And you know, I, but again, the, the the interesting thing is they're gonna have to make a choice at some point. And that's what that's what Trump is doing. He is he he it's like these old, the, 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 he builds up a personal militia. 
you know, a group of people that are loyal to him. I and mean, he don't trust General Dempsey or Admiral whoever, you know, that he, he thinks. Millie, right. right. You know, yeah, Millie. Or, that, that, that's, not, that's not what he's looking for. He, he, he wants some people with some change in the street. And that's exactly the signal that he's sending off. People need to see this for what it is. This is a, a effort not to win the election because there's nothing that he did last night. If you you go in and you, you'll say he's six points down. I think he's more than six points down, but let's just say six points down because that's the most conservative figure you can come up with. It, it, he did not, he wasn't even trying to close the gap at all. He wasn't trying to convince anybody. He was trying to dig his deep down into this kind of weird conspiracy, you know, Proud Boys, QAnon, God knows, you know, groups that, that you can imagine. And he was quite blatant about signaling that. And that's the only explanation. Now, I, I, and I'd be open to another explanation, but I, frankly, I don't think there is one. Well, subtly is not his bag, but I'll tell you who else is going to make a choice, James. Uh, and that is uh, a lot of people in the Buckeye State, uh, which we thought was turning red, but maybe it's turning back purple. Uh, and we have a guest who can really, really tell us about that. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Well, I'll tell you what happened, Albert. I, I go and look at the mail, and I got a, a, this box. And they open it up with some four different kinds of cereal. And I'm like, well, this is nice. I wonder who, you know, sent me this. And so my wife comes in and says, honey, where did you get this stuff? This stuff is really good. I've been eating cereal all my life. And all that crap tastes like cornflakes to me. But I eat it sometimes because it's easy and, you know, I can read the paper in the morning and, and drink coffee and eat cereal. I actually look forward to breakfast. I'm not kidding you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, my wife teases me that I gravitate to anything that's unhealthy. But this cereal is healthy and I really do love it. But let me tell you something much more important. And that is our two and a half year old grandchild, Kai. I took it out to see what he thought of it. And he said he likes it as much as vanilla ice cream, which he devours. So if I can like it, Kai can like it. And my daughter, who hasn't agreed on anything since I gave her a college graduation present, also loves it. Man, that's a that's a trilogy. We'll yeah. take it. Yeah. And, I, 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 yeah, and I'm not a health food guy at all. This crap is good. I tell you, I was impressed with it. And uh, I, I can, you know, read the morning paper and scream at Trump and spit out the magic spoon. <laughs> well, they've got cocoa, fruity. Frosted and blueberry. And not blueberry is the best, I think. Well, that's. I think Kai likes cocoa uh, because it. And now he won't say this as bright as he is because it's got no sugar, eleven grams of protein, and only three net carbs. That's just well, like the other varieties. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I never ate before. Yeah, I, I know the fourteen beers I drink every day have carbs. I think, but <laughs> I, I, I think I'd have Magic Spoon before you get to the beer. So go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code warroom, that's all one word, at checkout to get free shipping. Now, Magic Spoon, it, it really tastes amazing. It honestly is too good to be true. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. Delicious. Try it. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with 100% happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked that's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom all one word for free shipping we thank magic spoon for sponsoring this podcast James, Ohio is the state of presidents, they used to say. It's certainly the state where you win the presidency. The Buckeyes voted for the winner of the presidential election 17, I think, in the last 18 elections. No Republican has ever captured the White House without taking Ohio. Clinton, Obama won it twice, but Trump trounced Hillary Clinton by eight points four years ago. And then in an otherwise good year, the Democrats suffered setbacks in Ohio in 2018. So I assume... The Buckeye State was going the way of Missouri, from purple to red. But Joe Biden says he's going to win. And a Fox poll last week, that's a good poll, by the way, had the Democrats up five. 
uh, monkey survey had, had Trump up four, but the great Charlie Cook says it's now a toss-up. We have someone who can answer that question today, who knows Ohio inside out, Michael Coleman, the mayor of Columbus, Ohio, for 16 years, he did an extraordinary job just in transforming that city, and he's run statewide. Mr. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Well, good to be here with you, and I'm excited about being with the Raging Cajun. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me this, does Joe Biden really have a chance or assess his chances in Ohio right now? Well, I do believe that Ohio is a toss-up. I think Joe Biden can win. Uh, he are certain things he's going to have to do to win Ohio. Uh, it is a state that is uh, gone from purple to red, but I think because of, for many reasons, it's, it's gone back to purple. And, uh, you know, the governor's Republican, all the statewide office holders are Republican. Uh, both houses in uh, the the uh, uh, legislature are Republican. Um, and Trump won Ohio big time back in 2016. Uh, and, and, and I was as surprised as anybody. In fact, I was uh, uh, a, a commentator on one of the local TV stations when the word came in that uh, Hillary had lost, and I was uh, visibly uh, shocked uh, by that. But as I thought about it, looking back at it in hindsight, I understood why, uh, because Hillary had a playbook that was not the playbook that we had etched out for. And does Biden does Biden have that playbook? Uh, you know, uh, I hope he does. I'm having conversations with his people. And, and, and what is it? Well, the playbook is... Uh, well, under the new COVID uh, environment, it's a harder playbook to execute, uh, but uh, it is still uh, amounts to the same thing. Uh, having presence in Ohio matters. It's not just putting money on TV. It's having presence, and no, you can't have big crowds and like that in in in. in into the COVID campaign scenarios, but having a presence here is going to matter. If it means having small clutches, if it means, you know, being in some neighborhoods, if it means um, uh, having a bus come through, whatever works under the COVID environment needs to happen. And, uh, and people pay attention. It's like Iowa, you know, presence matters. Secondly, um, there's a, you know, Ohio's kind of divided into three parts. Northern Ohio's very Democratic, and it's about turnout for Democrats. Southern Ohio is very Republican, and it's about turnout for Republicans. Central Ohio, where Columbus is located, along with uh, other suburban communities, uh, is persuasion territory. And so I can tell you when uh, Obama ran uh, in 2012, Obama and his uh, opponent, uh, Mitt Romney, came to Columbus 77 times in that election year, each of them wow. combined, 77 times. And because we're the, in Columbus, we're the center of uh, communications uh, and politics in, for Ohio. And and, you know, it, 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 the, the, the reach communication-wise is big here. Let me just try one more and then turn it over to James. And that is Ohio, at one reason Trump won, you have a large number uh, of white, non-college, educated, working-class voters who went overwhelmingly for Trump. And it used to be, I remember the Democratic Party chair out there one time telling me when he looked at the election night maps, uh, he would get Pennsylvania envy. And I would say, why? He said, because they have all those big populous blue suburbs. And, and and we don't have those kind of suburbs. With Franklin County now, is that an offset? Of your, is your suburban vote growing to the extent it offsets that other vote that Trump uh, tends to do better? So the suburban communities, uh, you know, they can be Democrats. Uh, they're always on the cusp 
and the reason I think why we lost in 2018 in the governor's races because we spent an enormous amount of time in the urban areas, which is great. You know, it's good for turnout. Uh, but our suburban areas were left pretty much untouched, in my view. And so I think the suburban areas around Columbus, the counties around Columbus, you know, we could dig deep and we may not win them, but we could win uh, a lot more than, uh, uh, you know, we can get up to 2012 levels in those counties. So the suburban communities play a role uh, in, 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 in a Biden victory. I think we could, if we don't win them, we could dig deep into Democratic territory in those suburban counties where they become they go from red to purple. Uh, in Cle- outside of Cleveland, outside of Cuyahoga, outside of uh, Franklin County, up in Delaware, other suburban counties. And we didn't do that. Our strategy was totally focused on the urban areas. And I think Biden needs to focus on some of those suburban areas. And I think he can, he can pull enough votes to get all over the finish line. So, so Mayor, the Biden campaign calls you, and this is hypothetical, and says, look, we've got a, a visit to Ohio scheduled three days before the election. Mayor, what do you think we should do? Should we go to Cuyahoga and Cleveland and get the vote out? Should we do Columbus? Should we maybe try to cut into the margin in, in, in southern Ohio? What, what scheduling recommendation would you give them three days before the election on a visit to Ohio? I think you got to go uh, both Cleveland and central Ohio, northern and central Ohio. Uh, uh, central Ohio being that entire swath in the middle, not just Columbus. but you know, outside, get some of those suburban areas. Columbus is going to vote for Biden. Uh, Franklin County is going to vote for Biden. Cuyahoga is going to vote for Biden. I think some of those folks who are kind of like sitting in the middle, uh, that that are on the bubble, um, you know, and those folks live in the middle Ohio. So the persuasion folks are in the middle. Southern Ohio, you know, I wouldn't write them off. But I would say spend some time in Athens, spend some time in some of these suburban communities outside of uh, Columbus and outside of uh, Cleveland. So just to look a little bit forward here to 2022 in Ohio, the Portman seat is going to be up. Is there any maneuvering or jockeying on the Democratic side that or who, who are people looking at as potential 2022 Senate Democratic Senate candidates in Ohio? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think uh, there are a couple of mayors, um, one out of Dayton, one out of Cincinnati, that are looking at statewide office. Both of them are looking at the governor's office. Uh, the governor's uh, governor's extremely popular. Mike DeWine, extremely popular among both Democrats and Republicans. So we'll see how all that plays out. But one of those two may go after Portman's seat, um, uh, potentially, because it is a state, statewide office. I know, But I know both of them are now currently looking at the governor's office. And uh, I doubt if there's going to be a primary between the two. So people sometimes have a view of Ohio being a big industrial state. Of course, to, to an extent, it really is. But I, I noticed particularly in Columbus and, and in other places, even Dayton, uh, you know, a lot of technology uh, jobs are coming in, kind of a new wave of futuristic jobs. I mean, how do you see Ohio position itself in uh, between a traditional industrial state and a, you know, more more forward-looking technology and education-based economy? I think it is transforming into a technology uh, environment. That's where the growth of jobs are in Ohio, in particular in Columbus region. Uh, technology has really taken a foothold in our economy. Um, we're not a rust, well, Columbus is not a rust belt city um, at all. If anything, we need more industrial in central Ohio, in Columbus. But I think the state is moving more towards technology-based, younger population, at least in, in central Ohio. Um, but I think uh, other parts of the state, I think there, there are some issues, you know, that some of the population is starting to decline in some of the other areas around the state. And, and, 
they are actually moving to Columbus or outside the state. That is troublesome. Uh, let me ask you a couple, just going back to the presidential race. Uh, I've, I've heard some Democrats worry that uh, the that Biden and, and, and the party in general, and out of respect for the pandemic and social distancing, are really limiting any ground game, if you will. But the Republicans apparently say uh, the pandemic be damned and they are far more active. But I also hear that the mail ballots are coming in heavily Democratic. What's the trade-off there? And do you have any worries about a lack of a ground game? Or is that is that now moot? I think there needs to be a ground game, but not the kind of ground game you're seeing that ignores uh, COVID. Uh, and, and the ground game, you know, is uh, people know if you're in, in the in the region. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 2,000 people or 20,000 people arm in arm without masks. Uh, but I think small, smaller uh, events are important. And you could do it and recognize that there's a pandemic here. Uh, and I think the Biden campaign, I think they are starting to do more of that. You can't do the the irresponsible thing that that uh, uh, the president is doing, but something much smaller, much more intimate, but the word gets out and it's meaningful. And uh, that's what I would do in Ohio if I were Biden. Speaking of Biden and Trump, uh, I'm sure you watched the debate last night. What was your take? Wow. <laughs> uh, it, it is probably the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen uh, from a sitting president. Uh, And and I applaud Biden's uh, restraint, Uh, even though, you know, he did say a couple of times, you need to shut up, dude, you're a clown. But, you know, I wanted to say much more. Uh, I think what you saw last night is the chaos uh, personality that Trump has uh, and I, I think is largely contributing to why he's going to lose Ohio. Uh, in Ohio, character counts. And I don't think the first time around, uh, people in Ohio realized that, totally realized, or, or, or you know, that they were going to elect a fool for a president. And I think, uh, that Ohio is largely turning the corner for Biden is for Biden too. But, but Trump's character is such that I think he's crossed the line so many times in so many ways. And, and last night was a demonstration of, uh, of a man who, uh, he, <laughs> he, he, you don't know when he opens his mouth if he's telling the truth. Well, you know he's not telling the truth when he opens his mouth. Well, he only lies when he does open his mouth, uh, Mr. Mayor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time he opens his mouth, there's a lie coming out of it. Uh, and uh, it was incredible. I mean, some of the stuff, it was so it was even comical. My wife and I were looking at it. We just cracked up laughing when he talked about the billions of uh, trees that he was planting around the nation to address uh, climate change. Uh, it sounded something straight out of a Saturday Night Live skit. I, I don't think, uh, it was the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my life uh, from a sitting president. And, and uh, our nation should be embarrassed to have a guy like him as the president uh, on an international stage and on a local stage. Uh, he had a chance to um, address white supremacist groups, and he didn't. He gave him a pass again. Uh, it was, it gave you every reason in the world to understand that if uh, that we get, that it would be much worse if the guy were elected for another four years. This is what you're going to get for the next four years. Oh, perish that thought, Mr. Mayor. James, you've got one or two more, I know. You know, one of the more nationally uh, 
prominent Ohio Republicans is the former governor, John Casey. And he certainly, uh, anti-Trumper uh, endorsed Biden, a lot of his people are. Is Casey going to be some help to get some votes in Ohio for Biden? Will that, will that have an impact, you think? I think it will. Um, I think it will to those Republicans who find the conduct of Trump repulsive, his racist comments repulsive, his, he's the great divider, not the great uniter. He wants to be president of the divided states of America rather than the United States of America. And he's the reason for it, the division. Uh, I think Kasich can bring along moderate Republicans who put country before party. And uh, he'll have an impact there. And, and that's another reason why I think uh, uh, Biden can win in Ohio. It's a, I also noticed that uh, the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, except I'm not getting in the middle. I'm not. I'm not getting in the middle of this. Uh, are there any other kind of prominent establishment Ohio Republicans that are, are, if not endorsing Biden, just kind of staying out of the fray that you can think of? Well, I know I, I won't mention names, but I know many in the business community that weren't really particularly happy with Hillary that held their nose and voted for Trump. Uh, the last go round is no way they're going to vote for Trump this go round and have made it public and uh, talked about it uh, you know, publicly and, and among themselves. I've been in the room with some of them and, uh, you know, they made a vote for Trump the first time, but no way would they vote for him this time. And, uh, a lot of lot of business leaders, a lot of community leaders, rational Republican leaders, moderate Republican leaders are uh, saying underneath their breath, they are in no way going to support this man uh, this time. They they have to vote for the country, and and not for this goofball. Yeah. I, I, you know, in a man in a place like like Columbus, which is you know, got a large, diverse, and, you know, the, the stuff he did, you can't do that without working with a lot of different constituencies. And, you know, it, and when you look at what Trump does, this divisiveness and this utter inability to talk to 60% of the country, I, I got to tell you, I've, I've been out there, and I, last night I've just hardened my views that people are going to be surprised on the upside as to how big the result's going to be when the votes are counted in this election. I really mean that. I, I, I just think it, it, it was striking how little he tries to get anybody other than people that are already totally committed to him to vote for him. I, I've never seen anything like it in politics in my life. Yeah, he hasn't uh, do a very good job, nor does he care about expanding his base. Right. Um, his base is his base. He's playing to his base. The idea of expanding it uh, is not uh, not on his agenda. He doesn't care about expanding his base. And, you know, so that's fair game for Biden. So, you know, yeah, he's staying with his 40 percent, 38 percent, whatever it is. Uh, but I tend to agree with you that if the Biden campaign invests resources and time and energy into Ohio, he, they can win Ohio and keep it away from Trump. And uh, I think the rest of the country will, will follow along. Uh, this is, you know, has become a red state, but I think this red state can uh, turn into, uh, move back to a purple state if, if Biden does the right things in the state, invest, spend the time, uh, do all those things necessary to pull this state. Uh, and I'm encouraging them to do so. Uh, and, and I agree with you, uh, James, that if they can pull Ohio, uh, I think this will be a landslide victory for Biden nationwide. Well, uh, I'll turn back over to Al, make the general point. It, it, it You know, Ohio is a you know, just one of the more critical American states. And 
I think it would really help Biden to be able to say that he carried Ohio. I think it would give him some momentum and some political strength going into which is obviously going to be a very tough job he has. And I think Ohio's important, certainly in the electoral votes are, are, are critical, but it, it, its symbolism, I think, is, is, is really important to bring together a big political coalition that he's going to need. So I hope, I hope everybody gets the job done there. Over to you, Albert. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. And who knows, it might even put some spine back in Rob Portman, although that may be uh, uphill. Uh, you know, Mr. Mayor, you have been terrific. Thank you so much. I told you before we went on the air that I first came to Columbus to cover politics in 1974, and you couldn't wait to get out. Right now, if it weren't for COVID-19, I couldn't wait to get back. You have created one of the most sparkling, happening cities, young people, great restaurants, hotels. Columbus, Ohio is really one of the true gems of American cities. So thank you for being with us and congratulations on what you've done. Thank you. And I welcome you back to the great city of Columbus and uh, uh, Rage and Cajun. I'm always glad to be with you. Uh, you're one of uh, the great political minds uh, in the history of this nation. And I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, you're spending time and you're thinking on uh, what's going to happen in Ohio in this race. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mayor. It means a lot to me coming from somebody like you that has accomplished so much in their life and, you know, really brought around a great city. And we'll be keeping our fingers crossed and we'll be looking at Ohio. And, you know, like I say, hopefully we can bring this puppy home. So good luck to you. We'll stay in touch. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. Hey, James, our next guest, Benjamin Ginsburg, has overcome a lot. His prep school education, he and I both went to the Haverford School a few years apart, and his professional start, he was a newspaper reporter before he made good. He went on to become the best political campaign lawyer I have ever dealt with, even though I probably voted against most of his candidates. Ben is smart, he is politically attuned, and he is always honest. He stepped down as a partner at Jones Day a Law Firm a few months ago, and now he's a CNN contributor, a lecturer, and we can call him Professor Ginsburg. Hey, Ben, thanks for being with us. Al, James, great to be with you. Love that introduction. <laughs> Tell your wife. Listen, Donald Trump has railed against mail voting. He did it in the debate the other night. He does it constantly. You have written, this is wrong, It's a and it's a big mistake. It's going to hurt Republicans. I think it is. There, the proof of widespread ballot fraud just doesn't exist. And so by talking about it in the way that he has, he, number one, is depressing uh, Republican turnout in mail ballots, which is something that in many, many states, Republicans have really mastered and relied on to win elections. And then in the short term, he's, he's uh, and not so short term, he's putting Republican senators in a really odd position with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Uh, he's going to force the Republicans who are litigating voting cases in the different states to actually prove fraud, there's going to be a spotlight on whether that fraud exists to uphold their cases. And lastly, if it comes right down to it and there is a Republican incumbent or Republican candidate who's holding on to a narrow post-election lead, then the president's charges of the election being rigged and fraudulent will be wrapped around the neck of that Republican candidate who's holding on to a narrow lead. Well, I think you're right, and I can I can give you a very simple explanation, which I know you already know, which is that Donald J. Trump doesn't give a goddamn about that Republican candidate. All he cares about is himself, uh, and I think that's why he's doing. It. But let me, you know, I talked to Michael McDonald this morning, Ben, who is, as you know, the you know one of the great voting experts. He's down at the University of Florida. He said, as of this morning, I think 1.7 million mail ballots are in. I said, well, that's a lot. How's that compared to four years ago? He said at this time, four years ago, there were 40,000 and they are overwhelmingly coming from Democrats. They are not only asking for more than Republicans, they're sending them in. And I think that's a direct product of Donald Trump. 
Yeah, you'd think there was a pandemic going on or something. <laughs> uh, it's true. Republicans are being discouraged from voting by mail. And I mean, as, as you and James certainly know, if Election Day features bad weather or the coronavirus has spiked, people are more reluctant to go to the polls live and in person. The president's trying to push his voters into voting in person. It's a potential mistake. You'd always rather have your votes in the bank. Yeah, because you don't have to then go back to those people to see if they're going to vote. Every vote that comes in by mail is money you don't have to spend. You can spend on something else. Yeah, and you know it in advance, so you don't have to send them a lot of communications in the lead up to the election. Just one more thing, and then I turn it over to, to James, who really uh, is almost as expert as you are on this. And, and that is, you mentioned Republicans had mastered this. And not just, that's not the distant past. That special election in California last year for a congressional seat. Uh, the Republicans got more mail ballots than the Democrats did. Uh, I, I, I just don't think this has become a, a partisan divide in the past. Yeah, and, and nobody has asked the president to really explain his reasoning behind it. And maybe a magic reason exists. And uh, if it does, if there's some logic, it'd be good to know it and get it out there. So, Ben, I was doing campaigns and you brought up with the same generations as we are. I used to complain, like the Republicans, they just beat the crap out of us with these absentee votes. And they got, and I would like bitch to the campaigns. But I, I, as, as I recall, that was a, a considered to be almost universally a Republican advantage in campaigns. We didn't think, no one thought it was like crooked or anything. They would, we, it was just assumed, I think correctly, that y'all were better at this kind of stuff than we were. Yeah. First of all, by the way, I'm much younger than you two. Uh, but <laughs> I'm gonna get your yearbook picture out. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't do that. Um, but, but, you know, the, one of the first recounts I ever did was Connie Mack's Senate race in Florida, 1988. And Connie Mack was, was behind. He was trailing on election night, but everyone knew that there were lots of absentee ballots to be, uh, to be counted. And by the time they counted all the ballots, Connie Mack had a large and unassailable lead and became a U.S. Senator. It was an example of Republicans doing absentee ballot programs really well. The national parties took notice of that, made sure that Republican state parties had good absentee ballot programs going forward. And it's something that, that Republicans have done well to this day. So, so let me look a little forward. Let's just assume for the moment that I'm right. And this election turns out to be a, a, a massive defeat for the Republicans and, and Biden does quite well. How do you see the Republican Party going forward? You know, because we, you know, obviously in my life, the Democrats, we've had some, you know, terrible defeats at 72, you know, being, you know, traumatic, 80, 16, being trauma like you couldn't believe. And different parties are going to react to defeats in different ways. But how do you, how do you think the Republican Party will regroup and, push itself forward. It's obviously going to be around and it's going to be a lot of different factions competing for primacy. And I just want you to look ahead. Just assume that I'm right for the moment. Maybe I'm wrong, but if I'm wrong, we'll have a different result. But let's just assume this is a big election. Democrats win the Senate. Biden, you know, wins 350 plus electoral votes. And we go from there. Where, where, where do you see the party regrouping? Well, it's a great existential question. So to play out your your question, uh, I think that undoubtedly there will be a gigantic circular firing squad for probably 18 months as uh, different factions of the party, conservatives, Trumpians, moderates, all kind of take swipes at each other uh, with blame on, on who lost the election. I think that as the 2022 midterms uh, come into play, you would look to history and the fact that the in-power party loses big in the midterms. So whoever is leading uh, House Republicans at that point and Senate Republicans at that point can look for a pretty good election in 2022. Uh, it's not a great Senate map, but it's doable. 
And the House has been subject to a lot of shifts, although that will be the first election under the new lines, the new uh, redistricting. But let's assume that Republicans do pretty well in the midterm elections, as history would suggest. That puts aside the circular firing squad, and then you will have a very large competition to be the Republican nominee in 2024. There are a lot of uh, sort of up-and-coming conservatives in the Senate, in governorships. Uh, there'll probably be some rich folks who try it. Some may try and be Trumpian. Some may try and forge a new conservatism. Some may try and rely on the old three-legged stool uh, conservatism. But whoever manages to, to fight his or her way through the 2024 Republican presidential primary will be the one who sets the tone for the Republican Party going forward. Well, they're also going to have the bad drop. It, it's, you know, I'm going to be ahead of myself, but it, it seems to be highly likely that if Biden is elected, he probably won't run for the election in 2024. And I, I just don't buy it. It's everybody's going to get out of Kamala Harris's way. I think there's going to be a, a massive 2024 fight for the Democratic nomination. And that will be played against the backdrop of what is almost certain to be a massive fight for the Republican nomination. And it's history is hard to game out at that point, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, you would not look at what, how the Democrats would recover from the, from the Trump victory. You would not have immediately thought of a 78-year-old, 48-year D.C. veteran. Uh, rising to the top. And I, I don't know how to predict Republicans in 2024 either better. Yeah. And the thing about it is our mind won it easily. I mean, didn't just win. I mean, had a, you know, a couple of the earlier primaries, but I mean, once James Clyburn dropped the hammer, it was over. Yeah. It's it a really stunning thing to see. Biden didn't even have a campaign, literally had no campaign other than Clyburn. And once he won South Carolina. The whole party fell in the line. It was a, it was in, and I think that was a direct result of 2016. Right, and you know, originally, if you were looking at the calendar, you never would have thought that a victory in a South Carolina primary could get digested quickly enough to have the massive Super Tuesday effects that it did just four days later. That's not the way things have traditionally worked. If, if you just look at like Fairfax in Virginia. But I bet you the Monday before the South Carolina primary, Biden was running at 5%. Mm -hmm. And then it, they have the election, I guess, on the on Saturday. Saturday. And then you go, Saturday. Yeah, you go on, a, on a Tuesday and it just wins it going away. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. It just wasn't even close. Why we can't help ourselves about predicting these things. Well, I'll tell you something, Ben Ginsburg. If James's scenario is right, and it may well be, and you have a bloodbath in the Democratic primary for president and a bloodbath in the Republican primary for president, you know what you need to do? Go back to your roots and go back to being a reporter because it'll be a great story to cover. You're absolutely wonderful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you just a couple more questions about this. Uh, first of all, on the on the fraud issue, look, there, there's always been a little bit of voting fraud. There was one in the Republican Republicans in uh, that North Carolina district in 18. And Mo Udall once said when he dies, he wants to be buried in Chicago so he can keep voting. Uh, but but it, it really has been rare. And it seems to me proof of that is not any other studies, but Trump appointed his own commission chaired by Mike Pence and Chris Kobach. And they had to disband because they couldn't find many examples of fraud. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. So fraud has always been a um, more of a rhetorical argument. In other words, you need to have people in the polling places to root out the fraud that is undoubtedly taking place. And, you know, I think it's a good idea to have poll watchers as provided in state law in all polling places just to either stop fraud if anyone sees it or to validate that uh, there was no fraud by the absence of any reports. So the president's mention in the debate of poll watchers uh, is actually uh, uh, a good thing. Uh, if the poll watchers act too aggressive, which is what he might also have been suggesting, that's when you start getting into troublesome things. So if, if I commit election fraud, 
and, and I get 100 votes, there's a real risk I'm going to go to jail for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's not a very the, – the, the profit for, for what you can a, accomplish by versus the risk seems to be legally a, a, a real gulf. I mean, it's a, for a little bit, you can get into a lot of trouble. Is that, is that generally true of election law? Well, I think it is. I mean, it, it's um, it's it's something people people get very wrapped up in it, and sometimes do things that are not terribly smart. Uh, if, you know, if you were to find something amiss, you've got processes in every state for litigating it. And the truth is, when there is the the sort of scattered fraud that's been discovered, it tends to be over local races where. As we all know from politics, things can get uh, a little more fevered than uh, than can happen in any other arena. So, yeah, I, I do think that's a fair point. You know, I, I think I'm going to call turn it over to Alan. I've worked in a lot of different countries, a lot of different races. And I have to tell you, in, and I've polled in, you know, Nigeria and Brazil and Indonesia and you name it. I have never really been surprised by an election outcome. I'm, I'm, who am I to say that there's not voter fraud in a lot of these, you know, in the global south of, of some of these places? But I just got to tell you, it, it, it's not that big of an issue in Colombia. People really kind of assume it's going to be a fair election. And from every piece of evidence I see, Mexico, uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you that it doesn't exist, but I've never seen a result where I was going, this makes no sense at all. And I think that voter fraud worldwide is, I think people presume it exists more than it actually does. Now, I'm not talking about a place like Russia, you know, where you you can't vote, but I'm talking about kind of clumsies, you know, starting, you know, ineffective democracies. I've worked in Afghanistan, and I think they actually had a decent vote count there. I really do. Well, look, we've had a history in the U.S. back in the old days, starting with Tammany Hall. There may have been a few examples in Louisiana every now and again when ballot boxes appeared stuffed. So, again, the parties and the candidates looking out for fraud and having people in the polling places, uh, both for the casting and counting of ballots, is part of the safeguards in the system. But it's when you make unsubstantiated claims that the underlying elections are fraudulent that you start to do damage to the system uh, baselessly. Yeah, I mean, there was a, been here long, Leander Perez, who was an awful man, but he, he ran the Plaquemines Parish, which is where the Mississippi River goes in. It's kind of the long thing where the Mississippi River goes into the, the Gulf of Mexico. It's the election night, he said, somebody tell us some of a bitch to stop counting. We already won. Because they would hold <laughs> boxes, you know, to see how many votes you needed, and well, they produce them. <laughs> I, I thought I thought you were going to tell the story of the Louisiana parish that um, sold its voting machines down to a state in Mexico, and the next year Edward Edwards got elected governor of that state in Mexico. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that I'll tell you something that is very believable. There also was the great, you know. Um, uh, Supposed telegram, apocryphal though it was, that Joe Kennedy sent his son Jack uh, about West Virginia. Don't buy one more vote than necessary. I ain't paying for a landslide. (laughs) So, listen, this is Ben Ginsburg. It is always delightful to talk to you. Uh, You have overcome the Haverford School and being a reporter and had just an extraordinary career. And you're going on to do some fun and great things now. And let's just stay in touch, okay? And come back to my house in York, Ben. I just I would love to do that. That was that was truly fun. Give my best to Mary and Judy. I will. I will. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a, you're really a terrific guest that has terrific insight that our, our listeners and subscribers need to hear. So thanks a million, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Okay, thanks for listening. And next week, we're going to try something new. Send us your questions. We'll see if we can answer them. So just send them to politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. And send all the tough ones to James. I'll take the easy ones.